Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. Professor Chomsky, thanks for, for joining us. Glad to be with you. All right, whenever, are, are you ready for some, some, hopefully some good questions? We're rolling audio. Sure thing. All right, um, so to start, uh, you know, we've noticed that you've communicated your ideas in multiple mediums from the documentary, documentary you released back in August to books, interviews, articles, speaking engagements, and more. Do you have a preference or any feelings on which is a more effective communication tool for an audience? What's the best communication tool? Yes. That's the question. Personal discussion, face-to-face. Face to face, and did did you kind of discover that throughout time, or or did you have to try all these different things to see if that that fit better? I just think it's a natural human characteristic to want to be with people directly rather than through some alienating medium. Sort of like this this conversation here, yes. Um, so you were uh, involved in a Truth Out article recently, um, a couple of weeks back, um, and, in, and in a question that would regarded uh, political rhetoric, um, the core of your answer was not really for the speaker or teacher to persuade others, uh, but more to create a path for the listener, reader, or even student to come to an understanding on their own. Was there something that occurred in your career as a speaker that created this mindset, or is that something you've always held as a belief? I've always held it as a belief that I can't claim originality for that uh, sentiment. It's a paraphrase of a, on the nature of education by Wilhelm von Humboldt, early 19th century founder of a great humanist and the founder of the modern research university. Uh, he said we should not think of education on the model of pouring water into a vessel, but rather laying out a string along which the student can uh, find his or her own course uh, in uh, developing their creative capacities and their capacity to inquire and and create themselves. So there's a structure, but the important thing is discovering, not Okay. So then what do you believe is the, I guess, the purpose of your own rhetorical activities and, and what do you really hope to accomplish with them? 
Well, there's an ideal and there's reality, which may not be the same, but uh, the ideal would be pretty much what I just said, to encourage people to be able to think for themselves and to explore the issues that are partially laid out and outlined in the uh, course of the process of interaction. The reality may be uh, efforts to try to people to accept your own point of view. And that tension is always there. Okay. Okay. And you mentioned that there was an ideal as well involved in that? The ideal is to uh, stimulate and encourage our native curiosity from childhood on and interest in inquiring and creating. Uh, it's uh, once you've capacity, then uh, the uh, world is open to you to come to understand. Uh, if it's uh, dream, uh, the model of pouring water into a vessel, uh, studying something, take an exam, our own experience that that's not an educational achievement. It's a very leaky vessel, mm. and you haven't you haven't gained what's really significant, namely the ability to inquire and create uh, on your own. What are what are some of the hindrances that can um, sort of prevent an audience or people from getting to that point? The hindrances. Educational programs uh, that are designed for uh, teaching to test, for example, uh, the kind that are, in fact, uh, becoming uh, standardized in uh, American education uh, strikingly in recent years. Exactly the wrong way to teach. Okay. Now, in that article, you pointed out that, um, and I, I quote you, the idea of neutral objectivity, objectivity is at best misleading and fraudulent. Um, basically when it comes to politics and rhetoric. So would you then agree that um, the ultimate goal when making scientific discoveries is to eliminate bias to find fact? Well, what that means is whenever you approach any question, but with a point of view, the point of view should not be, should be recognized, uh, should be made evident to the people you're addressing but it should not be ironclad. It should be subject to change and modification. But to claim that you're approaching something that without any values, any preconceptions is an illusion. In fact, even our ordinary experience uh, is uh, by the nature of our internal capacities. Uh, classic formulation back to the 17th century is that experience conforms to the modes of cognition. That's necessary. That's the basis for even the most elementary experiences. And when we talk about more complex matters, of course, we're always coming with a, a background of assumptions, preconceptions, uh, which we may not be aware of, which we might try to bring to awareness and indeed subject to uh, allow it to be subjected to critical analysis and possible modification and change. Can't be not, can't avoid that.
Mm. So is that part of the human nature? Is that intrinsic to human being human as well? Being unable to avoid that? The core property is not just human, but animal nature altogether. <clears throat> just the most elementary perceptions directly shaped by the nature of our cognitive and perceptual capacities. That's inescapable. Uh, and uh, beyond that, humans live in a rich world of created uh, cultural experience, cultural uh, uh, wealth, uh, uh, much of it uh, brought from history, which we accumulate and try to deal with, but uh, uh, always recognizing its existence and we should be aware constantly that it can change. It's true whether you're doing work in quantum physics or in um, uh, just uh, human relations and social political affairs. Okay. Now, last year, um, I also want to refer to uh, a Salon article that you wrote um, that basically claimed the New York Times was essentially propaganda. Uh, so is it possible for current media to communicate in a way that allows the reader, viewer, or even listener to come to conclusions on their own? Or are they, is, is the current media now designed to sway an audience to their side? It's a mixture, actually. I never really said that uh, the New York Times is a propaganda institution. I said that there is a propaganda function that's intrinsic to the nature of the media. There's plenty of uh, very fine reporting and analysis uh, from which one can learn a great deal. And even the propagandistic exercises one can learn a lot from. Uh, propaganda is a complicated thing. I mean, take say, uh, let's take the, uh, the major question that uh, humans face today, important question that's arisen in the roughly 200,000 year uh, history of the species. Shall we survive in an organized form or shall we destroy the environment in which organized human life is possible? Now, that's a very serious question. Now, let's consider something which is not regarded as propaganda. Uh, there's a huge uh, uh, media coverage in recent years of the uh, discoveries of new technology which have allowed uh, effect, uh, use extraction of fossil fuels like fracking, uh, uh, complicated technology, deep water drilling, and so on and so forth, which have greatly expanded the availability of fo fossil fuels. It's leading to what's often called the prospects of uh, energy independence for maybe a hundred years. The huge literature on this, an interesting study would be, and we know what the answer will be, to take this massive literature and ask how often have the reports, the euphoric reports, uh, added that by doing so we'll be destroying the possibilities for organized human life aspect of this, but it's virtually never mentioned, just ignored. Well, is that propaganda? It's certainly a way of affecting people's perception and interpretation in this, in this particular case in ways which are highly harmful even to the decent survival of the species. So that's a kind of propaganda function. 
but not what we usually call propaganda. It's not lying about things, for example. It's a way of framing issues so that certain things come out, others are suppressed. Uh, as I said before, we can't avoid doing this, but we should be conscious and aware of it. And those who are engaged in this activity and those who are consumers of it should recognize the deep significance of distorting these critical events in such a developments in such a way as to lead to uh, literally a possible destruction of the a possibility of organized life. Do you feel that that the that recognition is not happening the, in our current times? Oh, that's very obvious. Yeah. Uh, take say the I mean the example that I gave is a striking illustration. But take another one. We've just been through a primary campaign. Parties had a primary, which was massively covered, of course. There was one very striking element of it. Every single candidate, literally without exception, uh, said that climate change is taking place. There was one exception, actually. John Kasich, he said, yeah, it's taking place, but we shouldn't do anything about it, which is even worse. So that means every single candidate is denying the uh, 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 facts about our current world, which are of critical significance for survival. Every single one. Ask yourself how much discussion there was of this topic. Not much. Um, so I actually want to get to one more quick question then if, if the, let's, let's, uh, go on the topic of climate change. So if the common person does not believe in climate change is, is the end of the world merely a communication problem then at that point? Well, if, if you want, it's a communication problem, but it's a problem that goes well beyond communication. It has to do with institutional structures in our society, which are designed in such a way as to lead to disaster unless they're modified. Uh, take, say, uh, markets. Uh, we're supposed to admire markets. Uh, they don't. They exist to some extent. They're, of course, shaped and modified by all kinds of uh, governmental and other kinds of uh, uh, interventions. But definitely, we do have, to a large extent, market societies. Well, one property of markets is that when you enter into a transaction in a market, you consider your own welfare. So if I sell you a car and we're both paying attention, uh, we both we try to make each of us the best deal for ourselves. We do not ask the question, what's the effect of this transaction on that guy over there? Okay, and there is an effect. If I sell you a car, there's another car on the road. Uh, that means more pollution, a more chance of accident, uh, all kinds of other effects. Now, for each individual, maybe a small increment, but overall, it can be a huge increment. Uh, those are what are called uh, negative externalities in economic theory. They are uh, a, a, a built-in inefficiency of markets. Now, sometimes they may seem small. Sometimes they're cosmic. One of them is destruction of the environment. That's an externality. Okay. 
I, I want to get a little bit, um, just ask a quick question about your, your role as an activist. Is there a relationship between your theories about language and that role as an activist? There's a kind of a abstract connection, not a very, not a logical connection. So our uh, language, uh, possession of language is the fundamental human capacity. It's the crucial capacity that distinguishes humans from every other organism of others, but this is the essential one. It's a species character. Uh, all humans share the human groups uh, do not differ in capacity for language. They're the same. And no other organism has anything remotely like it. And it's the source of the uh, uh, unusual uh, accomplishments and achievements of this peculiar species. And one of the things that we dis discover about language is that it does have a kind of a fund language use, normal language use, has a fundamentally creative character that was recognized centuries ago. We somehow are able to uh, produce an unbounded number of expressions uh, which are appropriate to situations, though not caused by them in traditional terms. We're incited and inclined, but not compelled to act in certain ways. And these uh, conceptions enable others to comprehend what's in our minds. Was regarded by Galileo and his contemporaries as one of the most uh, amazing facts about the universe, that with a few symbols, we're able to convey to others uh, the contents of our minds, our souls, they said, without others having access to them. And we can do it in a creative, innovative manner. Uh, well, that tells you something about human nature. And that's true of other aspects of our uh, uh, life and activities. Uh, should we, is it fundamental to humans that they should be in uh, an array of institutional structures in which their creative capacities can flourish? If you think that through, it leads to the conclusion that any structure of authority and domination which constrains human freedom and individuality is already suspect and that we should be asking ourselves constantly about any structure of hierarchy and domination, uh, whether it is legitimate and if it's not, dismantle it. And that takes us into direct questions of social and political significance. Okay. Um, so then what are your thoughts on how current graduate students at the beginning of their career, um, how can they approach communicating their work to both the public and even their peers in order for it to have the impact that they're seeking? Well, I think uh, it's up to people uh, who have, uh, people like us who happen to have a degree, a substantial degree of privilege. Privilege automatically confers responsibility means you can do things that others can't. And part of that responsibility is to create a public environment in which people are offered the opportunity and encouraged to pursue their interests and concerns without uh, the uh, distortions of institutional and other kinds of constraints. 
in the educational system. That means uh, in the classroom uh, uh, following uh, actually advice that uh, a former faculty member here, Vicki Weisskopf, once expressed very well, that the purpose of the lectures is to help people. It, it doesn't matter what we cover, it matters what you discover. That's the purpose of education. And that extends to uh, other aspects of social life as well. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Yurick. The Great Communicators Podcast. The Great Communicators Podcast, Grad Comics Live, Grad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking Comic Book series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX is, GradX made, is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more, about, find Grad out more about GradX, as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators podcast, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information, for more information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.